Welcome to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, president of the Ohio Christian Alliance. Stay tuned for an analysis and conversation about the issues that matter most to you and your family. Here now with this week's edition of News in Focus is Chris Long. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light from now on our troubles will be out of sight have yourself a merry little christmas keep the yuletide gay from now on our troubles will be miles away here we are as in olden days happy golden days of your faithful friends who are dear to us gather near to us once more through the years we all will be together if the fates allow hang a shining star upon the highest bough and have yourself a merry little christmas now merry christmas from the ohio christian alliance and we hope that there's a blessing for you and your dear ones this Christmas season. We're going to be talking with our good friend Bill Fetter, and again, as our Christmas tradition is, he's going to be talking to us about the history and traditions of Christmas. In fact, uh, we're going to be talking about the Christmas tree, lights, poinsettia, carols, and the White House Christmas celebration and Christmas celebrations and what they mean. So buckle up. You're about to learn some things, and I'm going to be learning some things right along with you. So let's introduce our guest, Bill Fetter of the American Minute. Bill, welcome to the program, and Merry Christmas to you. Hey, Chris. Merry Christmas to you and all the listeners. Well, thank you, Bill. And, um, you know, we've always enjoyed over the years uh, the real Santa Claus, uh, the meaning behind the great carols, of the faith around Christmas. In fact, we're going to be talking about that on part two of today's program. But talk to us about um, what, you know, there's a little bit of misnomer about uh, some of the traditions that we have, uh, whether they come from Christian or from actual pagan origins of surrounding Christmas. So let's start it off with the Christmas tree. Sure. Well, the the date of Christmas, I think, should be addressed because some people say, well, wasn't it the Roman Saturnalia and it was pagan? Well, and let's piece together a little puzzle. And the book of Luke says that uh, John the Baptist's father, Zachariah, was in the temple and the angel appears to him, tells him he's going to have a son, supposed to name him John. And he doesn't believe him. And so he's struck dumb. And 
It has a little line in there. It says that Zechariah was of the course or the division of Abijah. What does that mean? Well, it was King David that divided the Levite priests into 24 groups, and each group took two turns a year for a week at a time, taking care of the temple, burning the candles and the incense and the sacrifices. And uh, this Abijah was one of those 24 uh, family groups. But we don't know the order of the groups until the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947. And in there is the sacerdotal rota system. It lists these 24 families and Abijah is number eight. It's the eighth week. And it lists Jehoi Arab as the family that's the first week. But when does it start? Well, Josephus wrote a detailed history of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple being destroyed on the first week of April in 78, excuse me, August, first week in August of 78. And Josephus mentions that the priestly tribe or division of Jehoiarib was on duty that first week of August. Well, if that's the first week, eight weeks later would be the course of Abijah, and that would be the last week of September. And that's an important week. That's the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. And so the last week of September, September 23rd, is the uh, Eastern Orthodox September. date for the conception of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. And so if John the Baptist was conceived that last week of September, the gospel goes on to say that the angel appears to Mary and she conceives of the Holy Spirit. And the angel says, and your cousin Elizabeth is in her sixth month. So if Elizabeth got pregnant last week of September, six months later is the last week of March. So March 25th is the traditional date for the Annunciation when the angel appeared to Mary and she conceived baby Jesus. Well, nine months after March 25th is December 25th. And so that's the traditional dating for the date. But we didn't get all those puzzle pieces until the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947. Anyway, with that in mind, the next thing to talk about is the Christmas tree. And Uh, You know, we're all familiar with St. Patrick around 405 A.D., leaving Britain and going as a missionary to the Druid pagans in Ireland. And then when they convert, he used the three-leaf clover to teach the Trinity. Well, that's 405 A.D., but up to 722 A.D., you have somebody else from Britain named Boniface or Winfred. And he decides he's going to convert the heathen Germanic hordes that had come into Europe. And so uh, the story is that uh, Boniface makes his way through the woods, and he uh, comes upon these tribes that are about to sacrifice to the oak tree where Thor lives. So these Germanic tribes worship Thor. Thor lived in a big oak tree. Um, Matter of fact, the word Thor's day we're still using to this day, Thursday, that's Thursday. And the Germanic tribes worshiped Woden, and that's where you get Woden's day or Wednesday. And because they're pagan, the Quakers didn't mention their names. And so they would have Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and then Wednesday, the Quakers would call fourth day, and Thursday, they would call fifth day. And then they would say Friday and Saturday. So they, the Quakers refused to mention Thor and Woden. But nevertheless, 
these Germanic tribes worshipped Thor. He lived in a tree, and they were about to sacrifice in front of it. Maybe an animal. Some think it was a human. Anyway, Boniface takes an axe and chops down Thor's tree. And so people say, well, if Thor is really a god, he certainly can protect his own tree. And somebody else said, and, and so a wind comes and he blows down the rest of Thor's tree after Boniface had chopped on it for a while. And then the story goes on that Boniface wants to teach these pagans uh, about God and about the Trinity. And so he chose the the evergreen tree to teach about God and the Trinity. Sort of like Patrick used the three-leaf clover, the evergreen tree sort of is in a triangle. And so uh, he says it's evergreen, symbolizing everlasting life. It's pointing toward heaven. Your house is a built of fir. Let it be called the tree of the Christ child. And so these Germans would have an evergreen tree in their home to remember their entire nation becoming Christian. And so this was a, was a big deal. Well, the story goes on that it was Martin Luther that was coming back at Christmas time, and it's cold, and the sky was crisp and clear, and the stars were twinkling, and he decides to put candles in the branches of the evergreen tree and tells his children it's like the sky above Bethlehem on the night of Christ's birth. And the question is, um, by the way, there is a town uh, in this area of Germany uh, near Geismar, where in the middle of town they have a statue of Boniface standing on top of a enormous stump of an oak tree with an axe in his hand, and then his other hand holding up a little church, to symbolize that he brought the, the church to the Saxons there. But um, so the candles in the tree, they possibly went back to Hanukkah. And so the Jews celebrated uh, what's called the Feast of Dedication, 165 BC, when they were. Uh, cleaning out the temple. So we have the, the Jews taken captive to Babylon, and then Cyrus of Persia letting him come back, and then Alexander the Great conquers Persia, brings all his Greek pagan stuff, and then Alexander dies, and his kingdom is divided into four, and a general named Seleucid takes the Holy Land area. Well, he has a descendant named Antiochus Epiphanes, and he's a total pagan, and he has him sacrifice pigs in the temple and he has them defile it, and uh, it's just terrible. Uh, forbids them from circumcising their boys and kills women. And so the Maccabees are a guerrilla warfare Jewish uh, movement to drive these Seleucid, now sometimes called Syrian uh, heathen, out of Jerusalem. And they finally do in 165 B.C., and then they rededicate the temple, but there's only enough holy oil for one day to pour in the seven golden candlestick. But they pour it in anyway, and it lasts for eight days. And so this is where you get the uh, Hanukkah menorah, which is eight candles plus a big middle candle that you would use to light the other eight. So it's the it's a different one. So the, the temple candlestick has seven, but the Hanukkah candlestick has nine. And... Um, but the well, that's Jews right because uh, the windows. children of it, well, the children of Israel were instructed not to make any unto it or like it. Meaning these were it was the holy instruments of the temple and tabernacle, the lampstand, of course, which represents uh, the image of God and the light of God, uh, the seven branches of the seven is the number of God. But that's why 
they made it a nine and because they're not to make it uh, similitude to the to the lampstand in the temple but uh, anyways go ahead bill yeah well that was a big deal so they they weren't supposed to you know make the oil for anything else other than the temple and they weren't supposed to have the you know mixture of the frankincense and so forth and uh, and so the uh there is uh in the bible uh abraham there's a, a verse in Genesis 21 where Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of the Lord, the eternal God. A tamarisk tree is also called a salt cedar. It's a very slow-growing tree. It can grow in dry, saline, or alkaline soil and live for centuries. And so here we have Abraham planting an evergreen tree, uh, and then you have a verse in um, the book of Ezekiel 17. It says, Thus says the Lord God, I will also take the highest branches of the high cedar and will plant it on a high and prominent mountain. On the mountain heights in Israel, I will plant it. I will bring forth bows and bear fruit into a majestic cedar. Uh, under it will dwell birds of every sort. In the shadows of branches they dwell, and all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree. And there's a second century theologian named Tertullian, and he says, You are the light of the world, a tree evergreen, if you have renounced the heathen temples. Mm. And so, again, the idea of a tree was the Germanic tribes converting to Christianity, very similar to the Irish using a three-leaf clover to teach the Trinity. We're talking to Bill Fetter. He is the author of many books and, of course, the president of Amerisearch and the American Minute. And we're talking about Christmas traditions. Uh, Bill, as we go on, again, you know, because some people say, well, the, the, the tree is pagan, but you've just laid it out as to the, has, how uh, Christianity intersected, and uh, obviously with Boniface uh, being evangelist to the dramatic tribes in which they've become Christian. And so we, we can see that. Uh, let's go on. Well, and there's uh, even a there's even a Christianity Today article, or August of 2008, and uh, it said legend has it that Boniface used the triangular shape of the fir tree to describe the Holy Trinity of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That converted people began to revere the fir tree as God's tree. By the 12th century, it was being hung upside down from the ceilings at Christmas tide in Central Europe as a symbol of Christianity. By the way, St. Boniface became a, a very popular saint uh, and the largest French-speaking community in all of Western Canada uh, is located in Winnipeg, and their big church there is the St. Boniface Church. So I thought I'd put that a little in there as well. Well, this is fascinating, and of course, as you said, the lights were added by Martin Luther himself, and the lights added to the tree. And, uh, you know, and of course, uh, we've just come through Hanukkah, where the uh, Jewish people light the lampstand in recognition of God's miracle in the temple back then, and a symbol of hope and peace. And we actually do light the Hanukkah uh, lamps here at our house, and we pray for the peace of Jerusalem and pray for our brothers and sisters in the Jewish faith. Uh, but go on, Bill. Well, uh, Martin Luther uh, did... Tradition was you would have saint's days, and you would remember a saint in their holy life and try to imitate it. And, and so the most popular Greek Orthodox saint was St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas is to Greek Orthodox what St. Peter is to Roman Catholics. And there are more 
Greek Orthodox Church named it St. Nicholas, and more Greeks named Nick. Um, and so the story is that he lived in the uh, early 300s, what's called the 4th century, and during Roman times, and when uh, there was a movement that swept through Christianity called monasticism, where if you really became a Christian, you, you would give away all your money and join a monastery. And so Nicholas inherited a lot of money, and he's going to give it all away. And he, don't, he wants to do it anonymously because he wants the credit to go to God and not to him. So he would sneak into town at nighttime and throw money in the window of poor people, and supposedly it would land in a shoe or a stocking that was drying by the fireplace. And uh, anyway, once he gives it all away, uh, he was going to go to Mount Zion uh, in the Holy Land and, and take vows of silence, and you'll never hear from him again. But one family that had gone bankrupt uh, before Nicholas left uh, had three beautiful daughters, and he knew the father knew that the creditors would take him and they'd be put into sex trafficking and be terrible life. And the father thought if he could hurry up and marry his daughters off, the creditors couldn't take him. Unfortunately, he did not have money for a dowry, which was needed in that area of the world for a legally recognized wedding. Well, Nicholas hears the problem. Late one night, throws money in the window, and um, the oldest daughter has a dowry. She gets married, does it for the second daughter. When he does it for the third, the dad runs outside and catches him. And Nicholas makes the father promise not to tell and where the money came from because he wanted the credit to go to God. So that's the origin of of the tradition of secret gift giving uh, on the anniversary of Nicholas's death. And so on the St. Nicholas Day, December 6th, they would celebrate this. Well, the Muslims invade uh, Europe in 10, excuse me, in 846 AD, 11,000 Muslims invaded Rome and trashed the bones of St. Peter and St. Paul. That was 846 AD. Now we're up to 1087 AD, and the Muslim warriors are invading Turkey. All seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation were wiped out by the Muslim Turks. And now they're headed toward Myra, and they're about to trash the bones of St. Nicholas. And so in 1087, they moved his bones over to Italy, a little town called Bari, B-A-R-I. And the Pope has a big cathedral built, Cathedral Nicolo de Bari, and the Pope that dedicates the church is Urban II. He's the same one that goes to these European kings and says, send the Greeks help. And they do send help. It's called the First Crusade. And um, anyway, so now that uh, the St. Nicholas traditions are in Western Europe, you have uh, St. Francis of Assisi sort of in protest, comes up with a nativity scene, saying that we need to get back to the real reason for the season. Jesus was born in a manger. and uh, But then we have the Reformation, Martin Luther, 1517. And by this time, there's a saint's day for every day of the year. Matter of fact, a dozen saints are recognized every day. And the churches are filled full of icons and statues and relics. And he considers this a distraction from Christ. And so he cleans out the temple, churches rather, and he ends the saints' days. But the Germans like the gift giving. And so he moves all the gift giving to December 25th and says all gifts come from the Christ child. And mm. the German pronunciation of Christ child is Christkindle, where you get kinder care and kindergarten. Uh, kind means child and Chris means Christ. And so over the years, Chris Kindle got pronounced Chris Kringle. So Chris Kringle is really Chris Kindle, which means Christ child. And it was Martin Luther that said all the gifts. My daughter worked in Germany for years and, um, you know, different areas where they had these traditions. They would, December 24th, say, the Chris Kindle's coming, right? And uh, now one other thing that is a plant, not a three-leaf clover, not a tree, but a plant that That's, has taken on Christmas significance is well, the poinsettia. Yeah, tell us about that. The poinsettia we we uh, dec- we adorn our homes with poinsettias. Tell us about 
what significance they have. Yeah, so it's sort of a, a typical thing where you take a plant and then you give it a brand new meeting. And so you have Ambassador to Mexico in 1829 was Joel R. Poinsett. And in Mexico, they had a tradition called the Flower of the Holy Night, Flores de Noche Buena. And it was supposedly uh, the little boy and girl were going to church on Christmas Eve, and they were going to bring a present to baby Jesus, and they didn't have one. The little boy kneels and up across this plant with the red leaves, and he brings it. Well, the flower of the holy night, Joel R. Poinsett brings it back to his plantation in South Carolina, plants it, and it's called the poinsettia, uh, but it's the flower of the holy night. So again, another plant that has taken on a Christian meaning. And uh, state of Alabama, 1836, was the first state to officially recognize Christmas Day as a holiday. Since then, Every state has, but that was 1836. Um, the Puritans and pilgrims and most Presbyterians did not celebrate Christmas because they lived originally at the time when uh, Henry VIII was in England. And during his time, Christmas became sort of a Mardi Gras, drinking, partying, carousing. And so when the Puritans took over England, they outlawed Christmas. They outlawed Shakespeare's theater. They actually tore down Shakespeare's Globe Theater. They called it a den of iniquity. And uh, they were... And so when the Pilgrims, Puritans, and Presbyterians did not celebrate Christmas, but the Anglicans did, the Germans did, the French did, and, um, you know, all the other, you know, Belgium and Dutch. And uh, so most of our traditions are German and Dutch. Um, but you do have uh, the first Christmas tree in the White House was Franklin Pierce, 1856. Uh, during the Civil War, Lincoln visits the soldiers, and then he uh, gave a Christmas reception at the White House in 1864. Um, then you had Longfellow write his poem, um, where uh, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. That was during the Civil War. Um, you had the Phillips Brooks was a famous pastor in Massachusetts, and he uh, goes to the Holy Land and visits the places where Jesus had lived. And so he comes back and he writes, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Then you have uh, a Negro spiritual written during the Civil War, uh, and it's called Go Tell It on the Mountain. And uh, that became very, very famous. Uh, you had, on Christmas Day, 1868, President Andrew Johnson gave a full pardon to everyone, anyone that was involved in the war. Ulysses S. Grant, 1870, made Christmas Day a national federal holiday. And it's sort of interesting, during World War II, you had uh, people saying, well, we wanted uh, also off New Year's Day. And Franklin Roosevelt said no. He said uh, Christmas is the national holiday, and um, all other days are to be celebrated the same. So, oh, but well, fascinating Bill, stories. Thank you so much. And we're going to continue with Bill on the other side about the great Christmas carols of the faith. And you don't want to you want to miss that. We'll be right back after the break. But Bill, thank you for being my guest today. Merry Christmas to you. And again, it's AmericanMinute.com for all of Bill's books and tapes and DVDs. That's at AmericanMinute.com. Thank you, Bill. God bless you. Thank you. Merry Christmas. We'll be right back after this message with a continuation of American Christmas and also with the great carols of the faith.
This is Chris Long, host of News in Focus, announcing my new book, For Their Honor, how the D-Day prayer was added to the World War II Memorial. This book tells the 11-year story of how one of the largest mass prayers in history was added to the World War II Memorial. The D-Day prayer was one of FDR's fireside chats, but it stands alone as an incredible moment in American history. The date was June 6, 1944. Operation Overlord, the D-Day invasion of Western France, was already underway by the Allied nations. News reports throughout the day were released from General Eisenhower's headquarters with short statements but with few details on what was happening with the landings and on the beaches of France. The American public anxiously awaited throughout the day to hear from President Roosevelt for more details on the historic invasion. What they heard that evening was a president inviting them to join him in prayer. This book will inspire and encourage your faith. You can order yours today at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. It will make a great Christmas gift. America is kept safe because the Army National Guard responds, protects, and supports our nation when it needs them most. From fighting wildfires with air support, helping civilians in flooded neighborhoods, to delivering food and supplies to those who have lost everything, the Army National Guard always responds when disaster strikes. The Army National Guard also trains to be ever vigilant against threats, foreign and domestic. They protect our skies with missile defense weaponry. They secure our information, communications and infrastructure with cybersecurity. And they protect us against chemical, biological and radiological hazards with the civilian support team. The Army National Guard also stands ready to deploy and provide support for conflicts or humanitarian missions abroad. Join the Army National Guard and be there to respond, protect, and support your community and your country. Visit NationalGuard.com to learn more about part-time service. Sponsored by the Ohio Army National Guard. Aired by the Ohio Association of Broadcasters and this station. Welcome to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, president of the Ohio Christian Alliance. Stay tuned for an analysis and conversation about the issues that matter most to you and your family. Here now with this week's edition of News in Focus is Chris Long. to you and welcome to this edition of News in Focus, the great carols of uh, the season, of the Christmas season, of course, the great carols of our faith. Reading from Isaiah chapter six of chapter 9 and verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Well, welcome to the program. We're going to talk today about the carols of the faith uh, and, of course, of the season. And, of course, the the old uh, Christmas carols were really loaded with Scripture, and they actually were uh, written from a foundation of our faith. 
Here to talk to us about it is our good friend Bill Fetter of the American Minute and uh, also an advisor of the Ohio Christian Alliance Committee. And Bill speaks all across the uh, country also as a uh, as a speaker and historian and, a, and an author. Bill, welcome to the program. Chris, great to be with you. Well, and Merry Christmas to you, my friend. Well, Merry Christmas to you and all the listeners. Well, Bill, I I was uh, looking at one of the posts that you put up about uh, Charles Wesley, and of course he was the one who wrote this song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And uh, when we think about really the great uh, hymns of our faith and, and those with Christmas themes in them, uh, these authors uh, from their, you know, uh, Christian leaders put it to, uh, uh, really doctrine to pen. We don't see that in today's contemporary Christian music too much, uh, but really, and of course, a lot of um, the the uh, radio stations will just play uh, the instrumentals. We don't actually hear this, the the uh, words, but the words are powerful, and they're uh, really the uh, uh, strong orthodoxy in the script within uh, these Christmas carols. Your thoughts? Well, there really is, and I love the verse in Mark where it says, "The Son of uh, God came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many." And that is such an important theme that comes out in a lot of these Christmas carols, that, that God is a just God. He cannot help it. That's him. He's just, which means he has to judge every sin. And uh, in a sense, that's been implanted in us so much that every police drama you see on TV starts off with an injustice done in the first two minutes, right? NCIS, somebody's killed. You're held, held captive the rest of the hour, wanting the person that did it to be brought to justice. You just know they got to get caught. And so God, uh, when there's a sin, he feels this pull to have to judge it. Well, what did, what did he do? He himself provided the lamb to take the judgment for the sin. And so Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus voluntarily became the lamb, took the punishment for all of our sin. And so we can approach God not based on us being good enough to go to heaven. We're not good enough, but he was good enough to give his life a ransom for many. So that's what we celebrate at Christmas, and that's what comes out in so many of these classic Christmas themes, that God and sinners reconciled. Well, that's right. And, of course, uh, it was Charles Wesley who wrote uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, actually one of my favorites. And, uh, of course, his brother John Wesley was the famed evangelist, and really Charles was an evangelist as well, but really he was the worship leader of that... um, great movement, the Wesleyan movement, uh, which was so instrumental, of course, in laying the foundation uh, for the Great Awakening in this country, which uh, eventually led to the Revolutionary War period, in which, uh, uh, you know, the colonists did not want to be subjugated in tyranny under Great Britain, but wanted to uh, experience that freedom that the pilgrims, of course, came forward uh, in, in 1620, which we're about to celebrate here in just a few years, the 400th anniversary of the Pilgrims landing in Plymouth. But, um, of course, the, the Great Awakening, the seeds of it, was the, the Wesleyan Revival. What your thoughts on that? Yes, it was uh, so important. Uh, so, for those not familiar, James Oglethorpe is fighting the Muslims in Serbia around 1714, uh, 1718, and he then goes back to England, and he uh, has a friend, uh, he joins the parliament, and he has a friend die in debtor's prison. What's that? Well, in England, if you got put in prison, um, they wouldn't feed you. You would have to have some 
<laughs> they would say, hey, where's Joe? And they would find out you're in prison. They'd bring you food. And so uh, when James Oglethorpe's friend died, he got into prison reformation, but then he decided to start a colony in the New World so that debtors and uh, persecuted Christians could have a fresh start. And so he comes over in 1732, and who does he have as the Anglican minister for his new colony but John Wesley, and who is his secretary but Charles Wesley. And uh, now Charles Wesley, um, you know, they were brothers, uh, but uh, Charles uh, was the uh, the youngest of like 18 children. And um, <laughs> he was born in 1707. Uh, his mother, raising all these 18 kids, uh, taught them all Latin and Greek in the classics. And he was brilliant and got a scholarship to Oxford. And he came under the notice of Garrett Wesley, uh, who was also in Parliament. He offers to adopt young Charles Wesley and have him be the one to inherit his enormous estate in Ireland. Uh, but Charles Wesley says no. And uh, and so he, the estate ends up going to um, uh, Arthur Wellesley, who's the Duke of Wellington, who defeats Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo. But um, nevertheless, Charles Wesley uh, writes 6,000 hymns. And uh, as you mentioned, 6, he's 6,000. And he's basically the the spiritual uh, impetus for the Wesleyan movement. And uh, the, the Wesley's got their friend George Whitfield to uh, get touched by the Holy Spirit. He became a preacher. He came seven times to the United States up and down. Ben Franklin printed George Whitfield's sermon to the start of the Great Awakening Revival. Could you imagine? He would preach to 20,000 people without a microphone. <laughs> you really had to belt it out. Um, but this revival spread. And uh, it helped unite the colonies prior to the uh, the Revolutionary War. But um, I love the the words that Charles Wesley wrote: um, "Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King, peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled." And so that's the the theme that the you know. Theme, it, but Bill, um, what it is, it's really the gospel within these within these verses in this hymn and uh, in this Christmas carol. And, um, you know, this is what's interesting, is that the sound doctrine that's in these old hymns, that's in these Christmas carols, and people sing them every year, uh, and, you know, that's why I think caroling is so important, so that people, you know, who normally don't read the Bible, who normally don't, uh, you know, maybe even attend church, but they'll start reading, they'll start singing some of these carols uh, because of the season and to get in the spirit of things, and here they are actually reading the gospel and they're they're uh, reading scripture, and so I think that's so powerful. You know, one of the thing about the Wesleyans too is that they had association with the Morav- Moravian missionaries, and of course you've talked about that in your lecture series. The Moravians, of course, were really people on fire for the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel, and to send missionaries out all around the world. Um, and you'd, you'd referenced uh, their relationship with the, the Moravian missionaries before they came back to America. Right. John Wesley uh, was invited by the Moravians uh, to a prayer meeting, and that's where it's called Aldersgate. Uh, and then that's where he gets touched by the Holy Spirit. He gets about strangely warmed in my heart. And, uh, and he goes over to Germany, to what's near Prague and in the Czech Republic, and he visits the Moravians. And um, the Moravians were started by Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Uh, for those not familiar, uh, 
Martin Luther starts the Reformation 1517 because he had a spiritual experience. Some princes wanted to break away from Rome. They said, this is our chance. And they said, kingdom of mine, you are all, all now Lutheran. And the people said, okay, okay, king, we're Lutheran. Uh, what do we believe? So the, the people in these kingdoms, it was not necessarily the same personal experience with the Lord that Martin Luther had. So a revival movement starts in the Lutheran churches called pietism that uh, says being a Christian is more than, than just agreeing with doctrine. You have to have a personal encounter with Jesus. <laughs> and when you do, your life will change and you'll no longer go to the whirly bars and brothels and blue theaters and so forth. And uh, and so this uh, Moravian revival movement swept uh, and it influenced the Wesleys and then this swept the colonies in America. And uh, anyway, I could go on and on. But um, at the same time that uh, Charles Wesley, uh, matter of fact, the year Charles Wesley was born, uh, there was another a church leader named Isaac Watts, and he's the one who wrote Joy to the World. And so it was really popular in the colonies at that time. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns, let men their songs employ. You know, it, it goes through the gospel message as well. And um, uh, Handel's Messiah, uh, and the, the Come All Ye Faithful. This was a really popular one, published in 1751. Um, so what does that mean? That means that the colonists probably sang this, you know. Um, you know, it's interesting, um, singing, worship songs, is a Christian idea. Um, there's not a whole lot of singing that goes on in Islam. Matter of fact, uh, it's actually forbidden. Uh, they recite and they chant, but it's not making up a song in your heart uh, to, to God. They don't sing songs to Allah. Uh, Hinduism, there's 300 you know, million different gods. There, Every family basically has their own God. And they really don't have singing. Buddhism, you don't really sing to, you know, the, whatever the the belief system is. You know, you, you do meditations and chantings and so forth and ums, uh, but it's not singing. Um, and uh, no, no, there is in Judaism, it says that Jesus sang a hymn with the uh, disciples before he went out to Mount, Mount of Olives and so forth. And um, and the, the Bible talks about, you know, the trees of the field clap their hands and, and the tambourine and, and Miriam's song, you know, I'll sing and, and to the, the Lord scriptures say, gloriously. And the scriptures say, sing a new song unto the Lord. I mean, I never thought about that, Bill. That's so true, that in Christianity and Judean Christian circles, it's about song, and some of the other religions are not. I mean, you, as you mentioned, Islam, uh, Hindu, Buddhist, they don't sing, they chant. Uh, but in Christ, Christendom, and, and of course uh, in, in um, Hebrew, uh, they do sing, and it, it's it's a, it's a Judean Christian experience. I never thought about it like that. It's, it's fascinating. You know, one of the things that I heard recently, because I'm looking at the uh, American Minute on this, that uh, actually prompted our interview. But uh, Susan Wesley homeschooled the 19 children that she birthed, among which was John and Charles, and taught them classical education, including Latin and Greek. And someone said to me, a hundred years ago in this country, we, we used to uh, learn Latin and Greek in, in high school. Now we're learning remedial English in, in uh, college. I, that's how far we've fallen off the mark in education in our, in our uh, country. It's, uh, it's very sad to, to see it. But go on. Well, you're hitting on a key point. Um, and one of the books I wrote uh, you know, who's the king in America? 
I go through all the world's history, show the most common form of government is the king. And in these, you know, whether it's a Pharaoh, Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan, Tsar, and only the kings in the upper class could read. Only 1% of Egypt could read. Reading and writing was the, the scribes' secret knowledge, and just the pharaohs and the scribes knew it. And um, and they had, uh, you know, 10,000 Chinese characters. It was just for court records for the Chinese emperor. Uh, you know, there were 1,500 cuneiform characters in Sumeria. It was just for the kings. Um, when Moses comes down the mountain, he has the law in 22 characters. 22, it's so easy to learn. Kids could learn it. And so Israel is the first literate populace. And so we see for a country, and for 400 years, Israel didn't have a king. And it was the people that ruled, and each person individually was accountable to God. And um, and so we, we find out that uh, for a, a people to rule themselves without a king, the people need to be educated and moral. And uh, you give up morals and you give up education, then you have a populace that can be controlled by the deep state class that uh, they have all the secret knowledge and, and they're calling, pulling, calling the shots. So, um, so yeah, so uh, one of the different studies that I read, uh, Robert Woodbury, Baylor University, studied countries that uh, missionaries went to in the 1800s and found that the ones where Protestant conversionary missionaries went to, they ended up teaching everybody to read so they could read the Bible, but it produced a literate populace and uh, an upward mobility in society. And the ones where, you know, uh, other churches uh, that weren't conversionary um, uh, didn't teach the people to read. They just swapped out the pagan God for the Christian God, and, and the common person just um, learned how to obey the uh, the intermediary church leaders and um, and they didn't today don't have that upward mobility in those countries are poorer. And it's a repeatable study, right? And so the ones that they, they went to and they taught them to read, taught them the Bible, those countries are, in fact, more prosperous today. And um, But w- one of the other uh, things I like to look at is some of the famous composers. And, uh, you know, Johann Sebastian Bach, uh, he wrote a Christmas oratorio and um handel wrote the messiah oh the, 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 the messiah is one of my favorites of course he he wrote it all in one sitting and he said as if he said it, it, it's as if he had because uh, he closed himself off into a room and he wrote it all in one sitting and he said it's as if the heavens were opened onto me he had obviously a spiritual experience i love handel's messiah bill your thoughts oh definitely and there, you know, one of the uh, Supreme Court cases um, back in uh, 1948, it was McCullum versus Board of Education. Justice Jackson says it would not seem practical to teach arts if we were to forbid exposure of youth to any religious influence. Music without sacred music would be incomplete, even from a secular point of view. And so you go back in history, sacred music was a key part of it. You had Joseph Haydn. And he did a uh, Christmas Day performance. You have Mozart did a Christmas Eve performance. Uh, Felix Mendelssohn was a Lutheran composer. And um, matter of fact, his father was a Jewish rabbi, uh, uh, Moses Mendelssohn. But um, uh, Felix Mendelssohn wrote the tune for Hark the Herald Angel Sing. So Wesley wrote the words, and Mendelssohn wrote the the tune. Um, Then you have... uh, Franz Liszt did a Christmas tree suite, and um, but then Beethoven, and he uh, wrote different um, 
Christmas pieces that became famous and um, Isaac, so, Isaac so you, Watts, uh, Isaac Watts writing, uh, composing "Joy to the World." Yes, yes. Um, so in my different presentations, I go through, you know, uh, all the different names. Robert Schumann did an album for young for Advent and Christmas. Advent was the days leading up to Christmas. Um, there's Brahms Lullaby, and in German, we we all know the tune. You know, well, in German, it's a Christmas song. Um, and um, then I could go on and on. But um, it's fascinating when we, uh, and many of them were written during the Civil War. And that's also a special period of time. America is kept safe because the Army National Guard responds, protects, and supports our nation when it needs them most. The Army National Guard responds to disasters such as wildfires and floods. They protect us with missile defense, cybersecurity, and civilian support teams for chemical, biological, and radiological hazards. Be there for your community and your country. Visit NationalGuard.com to learn more about part-time service. Sponsored by the Ohio Army National Guard. Aired by the Ohio Association of Broadcasters and this station. This is Chris Long, host of News and Focus, announcing my new book, For Their Honor, how the D-Day prayer was added to the World War II Memorial. This book tells the 11-year story of how one of the largest mass prayers in history was added to the World War II Memorial. The D-Day prayer was one of FDR's fireside chats, but it stands alone as an incredible moment in American history. The date was June 6, 1944. Operation Overlord, the D-Day invasion of Western France, was already underway by the Allied nations. News reports throughout the day were released from General Eisenhower's headquarters with short statements but with few details on what was happening with the landings and on the beaches of France. The American public anxiously awaited throughout the day to hear from President Roosevelt for more details on the historic invasion. What they heard that evening was a president inviting them to join him in prayer. This book will inspire and encourage your faith You can order yours today at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. It will make a great Christmas gift. We're talking with Bill Fetter, author and historian, and of course, uh, uh, the American Minute is something that you can receive every day in your inbox, uh, which is Today in American History, and also uh, Bill is on the TCT Network, Faith in History. Um, uh, When can people tune in to you on TCT Network, Bill? Well, anytime if they want to go to uh, the tct.tv website or Roku, uh, you can get it on demand, or they have to look at their schedule for the area. Oh, um, for, for the area, but, right. And and uh, we've been watching that program as well and enjoying your series on TCT and uh, your lectures there. Bill also has a number of books, uh, What Every American Needs to Know About the Koran, uh, the, the Encyclopedia of Quotations, of uh, so many books that Bill has written uh, over the years, and of course the uh, story behind the real Santa Claus. Uh, but today we wanted to focus on uh, the great carols and hymns of the faith around the Christian and Christmas uh, theme. Uh, Bill, you know this is this was a great uh, study here. Uh, how can also people get the American Minute? Well, my website's AmericanMinute.com. And I send out a free daily email called American Minute. And uh, the ones at this time of the year usually are on Christmas. Um, I actually talk about Valley Forge. And one of the Christmas songs that was popular in the States at that time 
was, uh, God rest you, merry gentlemen. Uh, let nothing you dismay, for Jesus Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray, or tidings of comfort and joy, tidings of comfort and joy. Uh, talk about the, the gospel message in that, wow. But um, anyway, yeah, AmericanMinute.com, and uh, I did a book on Christmas called There Really Is a Santa Claus, The History of St. Nicholas and Christmas Holiday Tradition. Well, Bill, thank you so much for coming on the program today, and uh you know, this has been a real joy. And again, folks, I, I would encourage you to go to uh, Bill's website and, again, get the uh, email, AmericanMinute.com is a uh, way you can get there. Let's see if we uh, – uh, that is that the uh, web address, Bill? Correct, yes. AmericanMinute.com, and you can receive this in your inbox and, of course, see all the different books that Bill makes available. He's also available to be a speaker so if you need uh, someone to come and speak at your church uh, or community group, uh, he's available for that as well. But go to AmericanMinute.com. Bill, thanks so much for being my guest today. Well, thank you, Chris. And uh, there, I don't know if I had a minute more before your break. Um, but Yes, go uh, ahead. The de- okay, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were um, found in the 1940s and 50s, and lo and behold, a Jewish scholar found among them the sacerdotal rota. What's that? It was King David divided the sons of Aaron into 24 groups and gave them each a time to go to the temple. And he found the family of Abijah, and the time they go to the temple works out to being the end of September. Why is that important? Well, this, uh, the gospel says that the father of Zacharias was in the temple, and he was of the family of Abijah, the course of Abijah, which means he would have been in the temple around September 25th. That's when at Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, usually is. And if his wife Elizabeth gets pregnant, six months later would be March 25th. And when Mary is visited by the angel, tells her she's going to have Jesus, uh, it says, and your cousin Elizabeth is in her sixth month, which means the angel visits Mary around March 25th, and nine months later is December 25th. Lo and behold, the Dead Sea Scrolls help confirm that the date of Christmas uh, is historically December 25th. Well, you know, there's been some debate about that, and they said that normally shepherds are not in the field, but there is a particular group of uh, shepherds, and that is for lambs that are ready for the temple. Uh, so the shepherds, indeed, that were there that the angels came and appeared unto were probably shepherds overseeing the flock of uh, lambs that would eventually be sacrificed in the temple. And so how symbolic is that? Because Jesus was, of course, the Lamb uh, of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And we'd just like to leave you with this verse of Scripture in Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, Merry Christmas to all of you, my friends, and uh, God bless you, and we thank you for listening and supporting the News in Focus, and we love to come to you each week this at this same time. Thank you so much for uh, tuning in, and Bill, thanks for coming on the program today, my friend, and God bless you, and Merry Christmas to you and your family. Oh, Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. God bless. You have been listening to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, President of the Ohio Christian Alliance. To learn more about the issues that matter most to you and your family, visit online at ohioca.org. That's ohioca.org. 
thank you for listening. This program is sponsored by the Ohio Christian Alliance of Akron, Ohio.